If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Richard and Henry murdered princes in the tower. Mm. Uh, Richard, I think, murdered the sons of Edward IV, and uh, Henry judicially murdered the uh, son of George, Duke of Clarence. That was Leander Delisle, and who she believes was responsible for the disappearance of the princes in the tower. You couldn't be a shrinking violet in the Beaumont. You needed to be out and about and seen in town and participating in this very vibrant social world. That was Hannah Gregg on what it took to be a member of the Beaumont. I think it's a shining moment for American diplomacy and uh, helping to rebuild a nation that we had been at war with. And that was Matthew Fox, star of a new film about the American occupation of Japan. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of those, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. The fate of the princes in the tower is one of the big mysteries of British history and one that continues to divide historians. We sent our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, to meet historian Leander Delisle at the Tower of London, where the princes were imprisoned in 1483, to find out what she thinks happened to them, and why both Henry VII and Richard III were so anxious to bury their memory. So Leander, we're standing by the um, the walls of the White Tower, which is where the remains of two young children were found in the 17th century, which are thought to be the princes in the tower. Um, just just uh, not far from here is, is the tower in which the, the two were held. Um, why do you think that the, the, the prince in the tower holds such fascination for us still, even today? Well, I think murder mysteries are always uh, fascinating, mm. and uh, the death of uh, children is always particularly haunting, uh, and not least in a case where no bodies have ever been found, mm. uh, and so their fate is so uncertain. And when and why did rumours that Richard had actually had the, the children killed? When did they first start kind of circulating um, in the country? 
Well, as far as we know, it was the sort of end of September, early October, when mm. they began uh, circulating, particularly in the south of England, and they began fueling uh, a revolt, a rebellion against Richard. Okay. And what was public reaction to the prince's disappearance like? As far as we know, it was extremely angry. One chronicler says that um, Londoners uh, had, uh, had said that they would rather be French uh, than be under Richard's rule. And uh, nobody in England could imagine anything more frightful than being French. And, and do we know how they found out that the, that the children weren't in the tower anymore? We don't. Um, but it's possible that Richard himself may have uh, started the rumours. He would have wanted people, well, he would have wanted certainly the Woodvilles to know that they were dead. Um, so that um, uh, people would be able to unite around his rule, that there would be no alternative focus of opposition. But would, would, he not have thought, would that not have kind of backfired as well, though, like, as it did, really, and people accusing him of, of killing them? Yes, but he may not have foreseen that. No. Um, and so if he did think that the, if he did know that the princes were alive, do we, why would he not have come out and said that, do you think? And well, similarly, if, they, if he knew that they were dead, because, um, you know, when, when Henry VI was, was, was murdered, um, he, his body was displayed and, and people knew that he was dead. And well, I think that's a very good question. Uh, why didn't he, if they were alive, why did he not uh, say so and mm. uh, produce them? Uh, and if they were dead, why did he not display the bodies? Well, I think he didn't say they were alive because they were, in fact, dead. Mm. Uh, and he didn't um, uh, display the bodies because he remembered uh, what had happened after Henry the sixth, uh, his sudden death and uh, probable murder on the orders of uh, Edward IV. And uh, that was that uh, the uh, innocent king had come to be regarded as a popular saint mm. and a huge uh, cult had, uh, had sprung up uh, and been immensely popular throughout England. And uh, Edward IV had tried to suppress this cult, yeah. uh, but without any success. And uh, Richard was very well aware of its um, power. Um, and uh, I'm sure he would not have wanted a such a cult to have grown up also around the princes. Was that cult sort of still in existence at that time around him? Yes, it w was very much so. Uh, and indeed, he himself uh, uh, tried to take control of it. Uh, the following year, he moved Henry VI's body uh, from the obscure abbey where it had yeah. been buried and moved it uh, to St George's Chapel, Windsor, and gave it uh, a, a dignified uh, royal burial. Uh, in the hopes of, you know, I suppose an act of reconciliation and also in the hopes of, in a way, yeah. taking control of the cult. I can understand why Richard might not, well, I can understand why Richard would have wanted to play down the face of the princes. Um, but, but why would Henry the, the Seventh have done the same, do you think? Well, Henry the Seventh had, uh, had a very weak blood claim to the throne. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had married Elizabeth of York. Uh, so that uh, Yorkists would also support his rule, but yeah. he did not want to be seen as a mere king consort. And so he had to justify being king in his own right in some way. And since he couldn't do this by blood, he, he argued that he was king uh, by divine providence, uh, that God had intervened on earth uh, to make him king. And uh, one of the ways he attempted to prove this was by saying that Henry VI, who was regarded as a saint, had uh, prophesied a few months before he was killed that uh, Henry uh, Tudor would one day be king. Uh, and um, equally, Henry was extremely keen to um, um, encourage the cult of Henry VI. And he certainly would not have wanted a rival cult, a rival Yorkist cult, to these two princes. Uh, and um, so for him, as for Richard, it was a case of least said, soonest mended. And what sort of lengths did he go to to stop this cult 
from sort of starting out? Because there must have been a lot of curiosity around the princes. Yes, there must have been, but we hear very little. He he said very little about them. Uh, he um, he obviously wanted people to believe that Richard had killed them, but very little was said on this front. In Parliament, it was simply said that uh, Richard was responsible for the shedding of innocent's blood. Uh, and that was it. Um, there was no public effort to look for the bodies or to expose who had actually carried out, personally carried out the killings, uh, nothing like that. And no, no masses said for their souls? Not that, I have, not that I have found. You, you, certainly I haven't found any, uh, any um, evidence of, of chantries uh, set up um, in the 15th century um, for the prince's souls. And this was really quite, quite shocking because um, they did believe very strongly in the 15th century that you should pray for the souls of your loved ones to help them move from purgatory to heaven. And, and there were a number of, sort of pretenders to the throne um, around sort of Henry's, Henry's reign. Um, I'm thinking of Perkin Warbeck in, in particular, um, who was sort of pretending to be either one of the princes. Um, why were they so successful? I mean, Perkin was quite successful in getting support for his, his so-called claim to the throne. Do people actually believe that actually he was the, the lost Richard? I think some people did. I think other people just used him as a tool. Some of Henry's foreign enemies. Yeah. Uh, he was a useful tool for them. Uh, and also perhaps for other members, um, junior members of the House of York. Um, but I have no doubt that other people believed that he might, might be Perkin Warbeck. And, and it was very difficult to prove otherwise. Yeah. After all, there were no bodies. And you know, Henry was determined not to say very much about how they died. And I mean, Perkin was actually captured in, I think it's 1497, but he wasn't killed until two, two years later. Um, why, why, having caught him, why did he not put him to death straight away, you know, pretending to be because I Because Henry wanted everyone to, to know or to believe that Perkin Warbeck was a born, um, uh, an obscure boy in Flanders and was mm. not Richard Duke of York and so he kept him alive so that he could publicly confess repeatedly uh, that he was not a Richard Duke of York who he had claimed to be. Um, one thing I don't say in my uh, article um, which I, I maybe is now's a good time to mm. add is that I mentioned that even after Perkin Warbeck's death in, in 1499 Richard still very much feared uh, the fate of the of he still feared the princes and the possible cult. Um, and uh, as I say, this was very closely tied in with his argument that he was king by divine providence. Well, in April 1502, his eldest son, Arthur, dies. Now, if you're sort of God's chosen one, God mm. does not punish you by taking away your eldest son. And I think this was a great blow to uh, Henry and to his claims. And uh, I think it's maybe no coincidence that it was only a month later uh, that, he, that this man, James Tyrrell, uh, was uh, executed. And after he was executed, it was said that he had confessed to carrying out the killing of the princes on the orders of Richard III. And did he outline where, where the remains were? Well, Thomas More tells us that... Um, that in Tyrrell's confession it had emerged that the boys were buried at the foot of these stairs here. Okay, yeah. Um, yes, I was just going on to those actually. There were some bones found that was in the 17th century. Um, they're now in Westminster Abbey. Do you think there's anything to be gained by performing the sort of same sorts of tests that have been recently carried out on Richard III? I think that would be tremendously exciting. Mm. Uh, I think the, the reason that it's unlikely to happen is that 
there are lots of kings and queens we might like to dig up to find out how they died and um, our poor old queen is still very much alive <laughs> yeah. I probably doesn't fancy the idea of historians spending their time digging up her relations um, yeah. and running tests on them I suspect that will be the case I think it would be quite difficult to get permission but we historians live in hope yeah, we'll probably never know though, by the sounds of it um, and so if the bones were proven to be those of the princes do you think what sort of impact would that have do you think well, I think people will believe what they want to believe. Yeah. Some people are determined to believe that they're not the princes in the tower, and doubtless they will go on believing that. Yeah. Um, and probably the, we, we put um, a call out on Twitter for, for questions for you, and probably the, the, the biggest question that came back is probably no surprise, which is, who do you think, if they were killed, who do you think killed the, the two princes? I'm afraid I think the most likely culprit is Richard III. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason, there are several reasons for this. I mean, he, he had motive, uh, and his motive was that um, although he had said they were illegitimate and had no right to the throne, not everyone accepted this. Mm. They were, therefore, a potential focus for opposition to his rule. Yeah. That gives him motive. He had the means. They were in his power, in his control, in yeah. the tower. Um, they were never seen again after that summer of 1483. Um, and the other thing is that you just have to see what was the fate of previous kings whose thrones had been taken from them. Yeah. They all came to you know, sudden ends uh, while in captivity. And it was usually put out that, um, that they had died of natural causes. Mm. Uh, this wasn't done in the case of the princes, but for the reasons I've said that yeah. I think he feared a cult would grow up around them. And do you think there was there was the same sort of interest um, in Henry the Sixth death? Do you think it's the fact that they were children that kind of got people's imaginations? And I think that there was a very powerful response to Henry's death, which is why this cult um, yeah. began. And what, one of the things that's interesting about it is that he, lots of pictures were painted of him in churches throughout England, and he was always painted as beardless, like a boy, uh, although he died as a middle-aged bearded okay. man uh, and that's the sign of innocence but these two children they were children yeah. they were innocent and in them you have the uh, religious qualities associated with royalty also combined with the purity and innocence of childhood one poet at the time refers to them as Christ's angels and that's how they would have been seen yeah. Christ's angels it's quite a potent mix isn't it yes. <laughs> um, and what about um, Edward, Earl of Warwick, who was the son of um, Richard's brother, George of Clarence? Yes. Um, was he not considered a threat to the throne? Yes. He, um, by Richard, um, and then by um, uh, Henry, yes. By Richard, Richard dealt with this by saying that Edward had no uh, right, Edward Earl of Warwick, the little boy, had no right to the throne because his father had been executed for treason mm. uh, and uh, therefore um, he had lost his, his, his blood had been corrupted and he had no right okay. to the throne. Um, what his fate would have been in the long term, we don't know, but of course... Um, he survived Richard's reign, uh, but when Henry became king, Henry VII, uh, he was put in the tower uh, not long after uh, Henry became king. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, he stayed there with a small break uh, until he was in his 20s uh, when he was eventually executed, really judicially murdered by Henry VII for the threat he still posed, that Henry felt the threat he still posed. And that was the reason given for his his execution no he was um he was he was executed on trumped up charges of treason 
but they, you know, they really were sort of rather ridiculous charges. It was, it was really a case of judicial murder. So, I mean, I think it's safe to say that, in my view, they both, both Richard and Henry murdered princes in the tower. Mm. Uh, Richard, I think, murdered the sons of Edward IV, and uh, Henry judicially murdered the uh, son of George Duke of Clarence, yeah. the last male Plantagenet. One thing that, that does kind of, I think, confuses a lot of people is that Elizabeth Woodwell um, married her daughter, Elizabeth of York, to, um, to Henry. Um, do you think she um, believed that either Henry or Richard was responsible for the death of her sons? I think she believed that Richard was responsible for the death of her sons. Um, her sister, um, who was married to one of Richard's allies, who then turned against him, Henry, Duke of Buckingham, um, certainly believed that Richard was capable of killing children because after her husband rebelled uh, and indeed was executed by Richard, she hid her own son, who I think was then six from memory, mm -hmm. uh, from Richard, uh, which suggests that uh, she didn't believe that he was beyond... Uh, yeah killing children and uh, she was uh, um, Elizabeth Woodville's um, um, sister. Um, people say oh but you know Elizabeth uh, came out of sanctuary and um, and seemed to accept Richard's rule. Yes, but you know she didn't really have much choice. She thought Richard was the winner. She yeah. didn't believe at that particular stage that Henry Tudor was likely to defeat him and she was doing the best she could for her daughters. Um, and her surviving son, um, she had a surviving non-royal son by her first marriage, who was yeah. in France in exile, and uh, she felt that she was now able to call him home, that Richard would pardon him, and they would start a new life together. Um, and so she was just doing the best she could for the surviving her surviving family. And do you think she's doing a lot of plotting behind the scenes? Was she? Do you think? Well, uh, I don't think at that stage she was doing a lot of plotting. I think apart from plotting to survive, really. Um, and then when Henry became king, um, people say yes. Did she believe that, or did she believe that Parkin Warbeck was her son? I don't think so. No. Um, I think she did retire to a convent, and people ask why that was. Uh, and she was also buried without great ceremony, and people wonder why that was as well. Uh, personally, I believe it was because Henry, again, did not want to draw too much attention to the past glories of the House of York. Um, he wanted the focus to be on him and the Lancastrian dynasty. He didn't want people growing nostalgic for the, for the once great House of New York. And Elizabeth Woodville was associated with that as Edward IV's queen and the mother of the princes. And at any point were either Elizabeth of York or Elizabeth Woodville called upon to confirm or deny the identity of the, the pretender to the throne at all? Um, well, in a sense, Elizabeth of York was, because after Perkin, Elizabeth Woodville was dead by this point, but after when Elizabeth Wood, when, I'm sorry, Perkin Warbeck was captured in, mm. in uh, 1497, um, he was brought to court. And so, you know, poor old Elizabeth of York had mm. to sort of see this man around the court. Uh, and um, so, in the sense that she clearly didn't recognise him as her brother, yes, she was called upon to... Yeah say do something positive or negative in that case which is deny that he was her brother and do we know how he was treated at court was he treated as a, as a prisoner or you know as a um, courtier he, almost like a court gesture or right. just he, it was a sort of humiliating experience I think cause, because although he was comfortable he was kept very comfortably yeah. um, he it, he was there entirely so people remembered who he was and who he wasn't yeah. and who he wasn't was a royal prince why, I mean, that was quite different to some of the other people who claimed to, have to, to be the king. 
actually. Why was he different to the others, do you think? No, he'd been much more successful. There was Lambert Simnel before, this little boy who was only 10 or 11. Um, and um, he, he was put in the royal kitchens. But actually, he had, the, he had the best face, in a way, because he was put in the royal kitchens after he was captured and made to sort of turn the spit. Um, <laughs> but eventually, he, um, he, he was promoted um, and, uh, was, and uh, looked after the king's hawks. And he lived on well into the reign of Henry uh, VIII. Um, and so he had a rather better life than any of the little Plantagenet princes. Yeah. Certainly a lot better too than Perkin Warbeck. And in the Plantagenets and the, the Tudors have had a lot of um, coverage on television and, and things like that over the last few years. Um, what do you think about doing historical fiction pieces on, on this period? Do you think it can add to people's understanding or...? I think I don't, I don't think it necessarily adds to their understanding. I think mm. probably that no, I don't think it does that. But what it does do is engages people's interest, and mm. that's very important. I think a lot of people, their love of history begins with fiction. Yeah. Um, I, when I was a child, I used to love Henry Treese's Viking novels. Yeah. I remember talking to the Oxford academic Sue Doran. She used to love a Civil War novel called Children of the New Forest. Mm -hmm. um, my sons, all of whom read history at university, liked the um, computer game Medieval Total War. <laughs> and uh, no, I think fiction plays a very important role in that film. Yeah. Who didn't love Anne of a Thousand Days and A Man yeah. for All Seasons? And I enjoyed the Tudors as well. I enjoyed the Tudors. <laughs> Have you been watching the White, the White Queen? I did. I did. I did watch the White Queen. I enjoyed some bits of it more than others, but you know, I watched it. Mm. I watched the whole series. So okay, um, yeah. Um, we're doing a poll on our website at the moment to see what readers think about who the, the fate of the princes and who may have been responsible for, you know, for their, their end. Um, and as I left the office this morning, I think it was at 32% for Margaret Beaufort, and I think I think Richard III was in about 20, 28%, um, which is a bit of a turnaround for the usual kind of thoughts towards the subject. Do you, why do you think that is? Why are people coming down on Margaret Beaufort? Well, it clearly owes a great deal to Philippa Gregory's yeah. uh, novels. Um, and that's what I mean about historical fiction doesn't necessarily add to our understanding. It can add to our confusion. But uh, again, but it makes people interested and they, they start arguing. Well, I think she did it for this reason and then they think oh well, I must find out if that's really true and they go on to look into this and that I have to say that personally I, I, I find it quite distressing that poor old Margaret Beaufort um, is put up as a, as a murderess and I think um, that novelists will often pick uh, up on things that have been written, supposedly factual things that have been written in the past that really, that merely in fact reflect the prejudices of the time. Mm. And Margaret Beaufort was subject to sort of attacks in the 17th century, sort of misogynistic uh, attacks, uh, really. And, um, and you know, when there was one writer called George Buck who claimed that she had killed the princess with sorcery and, and poison. Uh, and I think that is the origin of this claim that she was a murderer. But you know, she was no more a murderer of the princess than she was a witch. She's also a very, well, apparently a very pious lady, isn't she? Yes, well, yes, I think that also. She was pious as she got, as she became old. That's another mm. thing. We, because there are no portraits of her when she was young. We think of her as an old lady, but she wasn't always old. And a lot of people become a great deal more pious when they're, when they're sort of, you know, old ladies than when they're in their teens or in their twenties. And we don't know what kind, what. what Quite what kind of person she was then, yeah. um, and so one mustn't exaggerate that, and then turn her into some kind of religious fanatic. Yeah. That, that's that's simply wrong. I mean, how much do you think we owe um, in our to, to shake people like Shakespeare um, in the portrayals of, of Richard III and this period um, as to how we we think about them? 
Uh, I think um, we used a great deal to Shakespeare in the case of Richard III, and I think that Ricardians were quite right to question that image. Um, and we should always question the kind of things that have been told to us in the past, yeah. particularly, I suppose, that they've been in, in, in fiction. Um, and Richard was in many ways a very good and successful king. Um, it would be quite wrong to think of him as a monster or a psychopath. Yeah. He was none of those things. He, he was um, a man who acted as... Uh, um, and, you know, unfortunately, people did act in those days yeah. very ruthlessly when he thought it necessary. He believed it was necessary um, for a united and peaceful country yeah. that there not be an alternative focus of opposition. How do you think he compares to Henry VII as a, as a monarch? That's very interesting. He, of course, he wasn't king for very long, no, and, and Henry the Seventh had, had a much longer reign. Um, but he he achieved many things that um, that Henry didn't. Uh, he did things uh, in the law. Um, you know, he did things for the poor. Um, and he was he, he was popular in many quarters. Henry the Seventh was was not when he died. Mm -hmm. um, but. Was Henry VII a popular king later on at all in his reign? Was or he didn't start off terribly well? Um, no, I think he became less and less popular, if anything, mm. uh, because he was so determined to uh, yeah. raise taxes and he and he was very fearful of opposition. And um, so I think he was a, he was a king more feared than loved, Henry, very yeah. much so. And your your recent book covers. Um, the period after this as well. It doesn't just cover yes, the... Yes, no, 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 and before, indeed. <laughs> um, it goes right right back to uh, the uh, to Henry VII's grandfather, okay. Owen Tudor, who's a great character, actually. Mm. I like him. He's one of my, my favourite. Um, <laughs> and he's definitely one of the nicest Tudors as well. He was yeah. certainly loved by all the women in his life. He was handsome and charming, and he died bravely, and he seemed to have had a sense of humour as mm. well. Um, um, I mean, what, what impact do you think um, these events had on... on you know, Henry VIII who had grown up, you know, knowing, knowing I think the English were haunted by mm. uh, the Walls of the Roses, as they later became known, and haunted by the horrors of uh, division. Um, and uh, the, the Union Rose, what we think of as the Tudor Rose, the White Rose of York combined with the Red Rose of Lancaster, was an enormously potent symbol for that reason. Mm. Um, yes, security. But I think also killings, the idea of there being killings within the royal family also uh, provoked horror. Uh, Henry VIII would later execute um, a member, this, uh, the Duke of Buckingham, uh, the son of the Duke that uh, Richard III executed, who was a royal duke. And uh, people were really horrified by that. And I think it reminded them yeah. of earlier killings within the royal house. They didn't like it. And do you think he, he went into his reign knowing, you know, learning from the mistakes of his, you know, his... They always looked to the past, yes. Mm. That, in fact, if you want to understand how any of these people thought, it's always worth looking back to see um, how did previous kings act in a particular circumstance, because, you know, they would have done that. Uh, and that's another reason why it makes one suspicious of makes one suspicious that Richard III killed the princess in the tower, because he would have looked back to look at the actions of his predecessors, yeah. and he would have seen that they tended to get rid of, you know, get rid of the kings whose thrones they had usurped. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's, it, it does um, 
impacts on 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 later on later events. Even the, the even the sort of Hundred Years' War, which is very important in this mm. period, of the fifteenth century, is still enormously important to people in people's memories, cultural memories in the sixteenth century. Yeah. And we think, for example, of Spain as being England's great enemy. It wasn't in English minds. France was the great enemy, not Spain. That's okay. a later construct, which we remember after the Armada, which yeah. was very late in the late in the Tudor period. Late even in the Elizabethan period. That was Leander Delisle on location at the Tower of London. Leander's feature on the Princes in the Tower can be found in the October issue of the magazine, which is out now in all good newsagents and digitally. Leander has also written a book, Tudor, The Family Story, and that's published by Chateau and Windus. And you can have your say about who you believe was responsible for the disappearance of the princes in our online poll. Head to historyextra.com forward slash princes for that. And now we have a short advertisement break. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In his quarter of a million copy bestseller, The Secret Life of Bletchley Park, Sinclair Mackay told the story of the ordinary men and women thrown together to do extraordinary things. His follow-up, The Secret Listeners, revealed the stories behind the codebreakers, people sent across the world on life-changing adventures to intercept German messages for decoding back at Bletchley Park. Now, in his new book, the Lost World of Bletchley Park, an illustrated history of the wartime code-breaking centre, Sinclair Mackay gives an unparalleled glimpse of a lost world and tells the history of a building and the people who worked there like no other. The Lost World of Bletchley Park will be published in hardback and ebook on the 24th of October. Matthew Fox is an American film and TV star, perhaps best known for playing the character of Jack Shepard in the TV series Lost. In his new film, Emperor, Fox takes on the role of Bonner Fellers, an American officer who was tasked by General Douglas MacArthur 
with investigating the thorny question of whether Japanese Emperor Hirohito should be put on trial in the aftermath of the Second World War. While Emperor does contain fictional elements, such as Fella's relationship with a Japanese teacher named Aya, much of the film, which also stars Tommy Lee Jones as Douglas MacArthur, is based on historical fact. I met up with Matthew in London a couple of weeks ago to find out more about the film and his part in it, and I began by asking him what had first attracted him to the role of Bonafellas. That uh, always starts for me with the script. I mean, you know, I read the script and I was uh, really moved by it. And I was really moved by the sort of epic love story. I was moved by how that dovetails into the current, the, the present 1945 enormous decision that this guy's got to make. Uh... Yeah, I, I really responded to the script and then, uh, you know, started to have a conversation with Peter Weber, the director, and um, sort of understood what he was going for. And he gave me some some key uh, ideas and sort of some understanding of the movie that he wanted to make and what he wanted it to look like and feel like. And uh, I was just really excited. I, I also really didn't know very much about this moment in, in time. And it's really sort of very important and very intense and sort of crucial swing moment of time uh, I knew almost nothing about. And so I thought, yeah, this is a great opportunity to combine, like, sort of enlightening myself a little bit uh, historically to a moment of time and participating in it. So did you do any sort of reading about the, the historical period once you got the role? Um, I did. I did. I love to do research, but I also am very wary of research getting in the way of this, the film that you're, that you're telling. Um, you know, we obviously took liberties with building upon this moment in time. Uh, the love story with Aya, uh, you know, there's some factual basis for it in that, you know, it's sort of, we don't know a ton about Bonnerfellers and we don't know a ton about the possibility of that, but we made that story in, in our film. Um, so, you know, I, I just feel like you can, you know, when I first read the script, I actually thought the Bonnerfellers was a fictional character and that he was an invented character used to sort of be our narrative thrust through the story. Uh, it didn't take me very long after that to realize that he was, that he was a real guy. Um, but it did make me think about like, well, how much is any research that I do going to get in the way of me just having sort of a blank palette of being able to tell this guy in the way that's going to serve our film the best? And that was ultimately the decision that I made. Do you find it a different kind of challenge playing someone that actually did exist compared to playing a purely fictional character? Uh, I think that that challenge depends upon how much people know about the character you're playing, actually. You know, I, I really think that Tommy had a different challenge, you know. I mean, MacArthur is an incredibly famous and sort of iconic U.S. military figure of the 20th century. He's enormously well-known, and there's lots of footage and photographs and just ingrained in our consciousness. He exists. So I think that if I were an actor playing a role like that, it becomes much more challenging to try to understand how, what pieces of that sort of ingrained image are you going to take and what pieces are you going to sort of massage. Uh, I had the luxury of playing a guy that even if you look him up, and I 
you look him up on yeah. uh, on the internet or you, you you seek out information on him, there is very little on Fellers. And so um, most people don't have any idea that this man really existed during this period of time and that he was um, you know very uh, crucial in some of the decisions made. So um, I feel like I had the luxury of sort of just focusing on how I, I could serve the film the best. And do you feel that he deserves to be better known? Might this film help that to happen? Um, I think, I, I don't know. That's, you know, I don't know. That's an interesting question, actually. I mean, um, I think that he was um, instrumental in making some enormous recommendations to MacArthur, who ultimately those recommendations were made to Washington and certain um, diplomatic uh, decisions and strategies were implemented, and I think that reshaped the entire region uh, for the for the for the last seventy years. So, yes, I would say probably he deserves to be slightly better known. And, and obviously, this is a very sort of controversial, important period of recent history. Did playing this role change your opinion of what happened in those years? Well, like I said, I knew I, I knew so little about this moment in time and the decisions that were made during this period. Um, most of my my um, most of my focus in, about World War II is what was going on in Europe and Hitler and Germany and the Holocaust. And yeah. so, this moment in time and this sort of um, is something I knew very little to start with. Uh, after making the film and sort of learning just a, a very superficial understanding of of the decisions that were made during that period of time. Uh, man, I mean, it, it was just an, uh, an enormously important and sort of swing moment. And I really believe that had, I think it's a shining moment for American diplomacy and uh, helping to rebuild a nation that we had been at war with and had conquered and destroyed. Uh, I really feel like it's, it's, a, it's a good moment. It's a, it's a shining moment for us and the decisions that were made, I really feel, yeah. And so it was the key decision of whether or not to put Hirohito on trial. Have you now come away with the impression that what MacArthur and Fellas did was the right decision? Yes. Yes. I think that uh, had Hirohito gone on trial and potentially um, been removed as emperor, even potentially had, had been hung, uh, it's my understanding uh, that uh, that would have been disastrous for, for Japan and the entire stability of that region for years to come. I've seen this movie kind of described as various different things, described as a film noir, a love story, a historical drama. Do you see it as mainly one of those three, or is it really just a blend? Uh, I would say it's all three of those. I mean, um, I think that each uh, person that sees the, the film, potentially sees the film, will walk away with feeling that it's more that to them, um, you know. But uh, no, I think it's, it's got elements of all of that. And would, would you be keen now to play more historical roles having undertaken this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, man, if I could be involved in nothing but sort of films that are based in a moment in time in history and, and, and then uh, and get to be a part of telling a story, uh, which I do really enjoy uh, collaborating with people that try to tell a story. It's a, um, and I got to sort of dive into a moment of history and learn a little bit. I think it would be... That'd be excellent. Are there any historical characters you've got burning desire to play? Uh, no, I haven't really thought about it in those terms, but if I sat down and thought about it, I'm sure I could come up with a bunch of them, yeah. <laughs> that was Matthew Fox. Emperor is released in the UK on the 4th of October. 
You can find out more about the film at emperor-themovie.com. Before our final interview, I'd like to quickly mention that we have a special offer available for new iPad and iPhone subscribers to BBC History magazine. If you take out a subscription, your first issue will now be completely free of charge. Look out for the BBC History magazine app on iTunes or the newsstand. Now, if you wanted to be fashionable in Georgian London, it wasn't enough to simply be well-dressed. The period saw the rise of an elite group known as the Beau Monde, a club for which membership was hard to come by and wealth and status were essential. Charlotte Hodgman caught up with Hannah Gregg, author of a new book on the Beau Monde, to unravel its mysteries. On reading your book, um, it seems to me that the term Beau Monde is actually quite a tricky one to pin down. Um, it, it's not just about fashion, um, it's, it's, it's about more than that. I was wondering whether you can explain to, to listeners what it actually meant in the context of Georgian England. Well, it was quite a shadowy um, term, but I mean, the, the simplest definition was the world or people of fashion, but it really captured um, a new kind of elite. And it was the elite who dominated London um, during the season. Um, so as an elite category, it consisted primarily of the titled aristocracy. So if we think of dukes and duchesses and lords and ladies, but their preeminence and their right to membership of this world was understood not simply on the basis of their inherited positions and their vast wealth, but also social and cultural qualities, um, so like fashion, but also consumption and sociability and public display. And you also had to be quite wealthy, I assume, um, to, to actually be able to, to, to join this sort of set. Yeah, you definitely need the deep pockets um, to make your mark in the London season. Um, most members of the Beaumont maintained a townhouse um, and actually lots of these kind of properties have now been lost and they've been replaced in London by big apartment blocks. But in the 18th century, most aristocratic families had a kind of London palace um, that they used for the season and that would be kitted out with all the latest furniture. Um, you needed to find clothes in order to participate in all the social events of the season. Um, so you couldn't really do it on credit alone you definitely needed um, wealth in order to make your status. And, and why do you think this came about in Georgian England? What was it about this period that made it possible for such an elite set to, to emerge? Well there were some really kind of important um, and fundamental changes um, in the early 1700s and, and actually the first and perhaps most significant is the Glorious Revolution of 1689 when the Catholic King James II is replaced by William and Mary and in the wake of this um, monarchical revolution came lots of political changes and one of them was the establishment of an annual sitting of Parliament um, for a number of months every year and this meant that the titles elite had to come to London to participate in politics and it drew titled families um, to the capital and it also meant there was a concentration of elite power in London um, for regular times of the year, year after year after year and it was really this political change and the sitting of Parliament that underpinned what this, what this season was about. Um, but alongside that kind of very fundamental and constitutional change, there are other changes which we're very familiar with as historians. So um, very rapid urbanisation, um, the development of a new consumer society, and all of these changes made people think about how status was defined and it brought you into contact with new types of living and new kinds of people. And the development of the Beaumont is really the kind of elite response to this new environment and a redefinition of elite status in the terms of this kind of life in the town. 
And how would one gain membership to this group? I mean, were there certain criteria that needed to be met? Well, it was primarily the political elite, so the politicians and their families who, had, who in the 18th century were largely titled. Um, but it also involved a kind of very public participation in the season. So um, when you came to London for the season, you attended the theatre or the opera repeatedly, week after week after week. You had to attend um, lots of um, kind of parties and other social events. And on the face of it, it seems like well, kind of quite a glittering and fast living kind of urban life. But it was the political business of the season that really drove all of these encounters because um, at all of the social meetings, that was when political alliances were made, when news was shared, when deals were brokered and where different political partnerships were broken. Um, so in order to, to gain membership, you had to maintain this very visible um, public presence. You couldn't be a shrinking violet in the Beaumont. You needed to be out and about and seen in town and participating in this very vibrant social world. So would women um, of the Beaumont also have participated in these political kind of allegiances and things that, like that that were going on? Yeah, this, because um, there's a kind of blurring of the line between what was political and what was social, it means that um, aristocratic women in particular were very involved in the political life of London and, and, and of the nation. And um, I think it's you know sometimes easy for us to forget about that when we think of politics as only existing in Parliament. But actually, if we understand that political news was being shared in the boxes at the opera, um, that, and women were participating in the dinners and they were participating in the balls, um, you know, when, where politics was happening, then they're very much integrated and essential to this kind of political world. And I mean, I, I imagine that there were many colourful characters in this set. I mean, do any of them stand out for you in particular, you know, from your research? Um, there, are, there are many who um, kind of have a particularly high profile in the Beaumonts, but I think... In some ways, some of the ones that I became most fond of, if I can say that when I was writing the book, were actually those on the edges. And um, there's these incredible stories about these men who pretended to be men of fashion, who were imposters in the kind of London fashionable scene. And, and the reason that they did it was not really to kind of integrate themselves into the social world, but actually to defraud the luxury shopkeepers in London. And um, so there's one man called James Hobart who pretended to be Lord Massey and the Duke of Ormond and various other kind of grandees. And he sets himself up in a in a kind of a London rented rooms near St. James's Square and gets and hires a carriage and some footmen. And then he goes round all the goldsmiths in London and convinces them that he is a man of fashion and a man of the beau monde. And they lend him various items of their um, stock. So, you know, fine jewellery, fine clothes. And then, of course, he gets them on credit, but then he just scarpers. And by the time the shopkeepers have kind of checked his credentials, you know, he's, he's long gone. Um, and eventually the law catches up with him. But one of the reasons that I like him so much is that even when he's in prison, he dresses himself in his finest suit and he kits out his prison cell with all of this furniture. And then he holds kind of, you know, interviews with the public and the press to talk about his, his exploits. And, and so it's those sorts of people, actually, who are trying to exploit this kind of new system um, who, I, who I hadn't expected to find, but, but really enjoyed when I did find them. I mean, uh, there's what I can't remember the name of the lady, but there was one example you use in the book about somebody who was sort of desperate to get into this elite group, um, but couldn't. I mean, it, what what sort of made some people able to to get in there? You know, they might have had all the criteria, but they just didn't have that something. Yeah, well, it was the something that um, I mean, Lord Chesterfield describes it as the je ne sais quoi. You know, it's the sort of thing that we might describe today as the it factor. Um, but 
I mean, in some ways, it wasn't really that mysterious. You just had to be incredibly well-connected, but then also prepared to kind of play the London game. Uh, but one of the diaries which I used in, in the book is the diary of Gertrude Saville. That who's, was her, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a kind of conservative spinster. And she's also crippled by depression. And she just finds it impossible to kind of maintain any of the sociability that's required by this kind of fast-living London life. And her diary is really exceptional for being so frank about how she feels excluded and kind of unable to, to involve herself in this social world world um but there were others who, who had a lot more confidence than Gertrude Savile. <laughs> <laughs> and how were members of the Beaumont viewed publicly and, and by the press? Well I suppose they're kind of most familiar to us really through the many kind of hundreds of surviving caricatures and satires from the 18th century I mean it's a world that's you know kind of brought to life by James Gilray and Thomas Rowlandson and others um, and in some ways it's a life a world that seems to be pilloried by these satirists and treated with great disdain but there's a sense in which membership of the Beaumont is dependent on public acknowledgement and public approval so much of it was about parading on the public stage and even through the caricatures we can see that there are characters there who are very recognisable. They're often not named, but we know that the Duchess of Devonshire appears in many caricatures, Charles James Fox, you know, the Prince of Wales, and many other aristocratic figures. And the fact that we know who they are, we, we know that they were recognised by the public, tells us something important about how identifiable they were in London and something about how, you know, this this sense of being a person of fashion was acknowledged in the public realm too. Um, and I think that what my book tries to do is move us away from some of the stereotypes that surround the satires and look more carefully about what life in this fashionable world actually meant. So using diaries and letters and other manuscripts to try and see what was in it for the elite themselves. And was there any sort of parallel elsewhere in the world, you know, in France or you know, elsewhere on the continent the same sort of set was sort of going on there? Um, well, there was a kind of understanding that Paris was also a centre of fashion in the 18th century, but the English elite and also England more generally sort of um, treated Paris with a little bit of disdain as well. And they, they felt that the Parisian elite were far more dominated by the court than was the case in England. And one of the reasons that the English Beaumont felt themselves to be so distinctive was that they regarded themselves as existing outside the palace walls and in a much more kind of public framework than was the case um, in France. Um, but I mean, any historical period always had its kind of exclusive sets and elite groups. Um, but the Beaumont was very much um, a kind of creation of 18th century England. And once you'd been accepted to the Beaumont, was it a case that you were a member for life or, or, you know, were there circumstances that meant you would be asked to leave or you would be sort of shunned by them all? Uh, yeah, you could definitely be asked to leave and be shunned. And, and one of the reasons as a historian that this kind of world interests me is the sense of fragility that was often attached to membership of the Beaumont. So although, you know, other forms of rank like inherited title or wealth often carry on from generation to generation, this idea of being a member of the fashionable elite was something that had to be won and rewon season after season. So you had to participate, um, you know, very visibly. But also if you broke the rules, then you could be quite swiftly exiled. Um, from from that kind of London scene. And I mean, one of the most um, sharp breaches of the social contract for the Beaumonts was really sexual indiscretion, particularly for women. Um, and so although we tend to imagine the kind of Georgian high society as a world of great sexual freedom, actually for many women who engaged in adulterous affairs, social exile was um, the price that they had to pay. 
Yeah, the, the Duchess of Devonshire, she had a, a, an affair, didn't she? But was, was she asked to, to leave? Well, she did leave for a short period. I mean, she gave birth to her illegitimate child um, abroad. Um, but one of the reasons that she kind of successfully managed to regain her position in society was because much of that scandal was actually withheld from the press. And we can see that a kind of system of social exile, so for example, the Duchess of Devonshire being sent abroad for two years while she had her child, is a way of the Beaumonts kind of policing themselves, that provided they could keep certain bits of information out of the public eye, then there was some way for people to kind of re-establish their position. And the other important element in the Duchess of Devonshire's case was that she actually retained the protection of her husband, the Duke. Um, so he did actually allow her to return to London, to return to his house and to return to the marriage um, after she'd had her child, which wasn't the case um, for some other aristocratic women. OK. And did they actually refer to themselves as the Beaumont? Yes, they did. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So it's not it's not simply a kind of it's not just a term of um, it's not just a sort of term of rebuke or satire. It is um, more widely used than that. Um, and they did regard themselves as being part of, you know, a fashionable set. Um, and yeah. And, and how did they view the rest of society? Did, did, they, did they was it a case of looking down on everybody else? Um, I think there is a sense of certainly an understanding of their superior position that comes largely from their kind of inherited position. But, I mean, I don't want to be kind of great defenders of a great defender of privilege, but I think there is also a sense of which this new elite really felt that they were representing a public in a way that defended the nation against court tyranny. They were a kind of buffer of power between, you know, um, a monarchy who might otherwise have too much authority and a kind of, you know, meritocracy that might be completely out of control. And so, you know, within kind of generational memory was the civil wars of the 17th century and then also, the, you know, the kind of great anxieties of the Gross Revolution and the need to um, kind of remove James II from the throne. And so the titled elite really you know, sort of believed themselves to be an appropriate and modern buffer between either of those two extremes. Yeah, I mean, they're not exactly representative of, of Georgian society. Um, so what do you think we can learn from studying them? What does it tell us about wider life in, in the period? Well, they're certainly a very privileged um, minority and they're not at all representative of society as a whole. But I think that one of the things that's most interesting is exactly the concentration of power and privilege that was in that small circle. And so we need to understand why that is the case. Why is it that such an important amount of social, cultural and also political power was entrusted um, in, a, in a, a few hands? And um, I mean, many of the, you know, kind of facets of life in the Beaumont, so, um, you know, being reported in the press, appearing in public, um, being talked about on the public stage, um, you know, having your status reflected through the public eye um, helps us think about, you know, the society beyond the Beaumont as well. So who was watching them? Who was applauding them? Who was criticising them? Who was challenging, challenging them? Um, and so although the people inside the circle are very few, it has a resonance, I think, that extends far beyond their exclusive ranks. And I suppose it can tell us quite a lot about um, sort of consumerism and, you know, fashions and things like that of the day. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, the Duchess of Devonshire routinely appears in fashion plates at the front of pocketbooks that would have been bought, bought by women uh, around the country. You know, the names of the Beaumont would have been known, um, you know, far beyond London and their antics were reported, you know, across the nation. And 
they were really seen as setting the um, kind of grade in terms of the fashions of the day, the pursuits of the day. Um, and yeah, so they had a kind of wider impact than um, simply what was happening in Western London. I mean, do you think they were more well-known and more widely kind of emulated than the, um, than the monarchy? Yes, I think I think I think they had a different. I think they had a very different role to the monarchy, and in some ways, their their profile helped the monarchy take the shape it did over the course of the 18th century. I mean, we tend to think of George III and Queen Charlotte as quite kind of domestic in their interests, and that was a kind of public image that was very much promoted in the second half of the century. And it it fell on the titles elite to be the fast-living, the rakish, the kind of dissipated and and the kind of more exciting celebrities of the day. Um, And just... just Finally, you, you've recently nominated the, the Whig politician Charles James Fox in, in our poll to find the best dressed Briton in history. And he was part of the Beaumont, I believe. Um, he doesn't at first glance seem like an obvious choice, um, sort of from a fashion perspective. But what, what made you nominate him? He's not an obvious choice. He's my kind of wild card choice of what it means to be fashionable. Because, you know, particularly in later life, where he seems really scruffy and unkempt and kind of untidy. And so he's not, um, yeah, he isn't the first person that might come to mind if we're searching for the best dressed Britain. But the reason that I put him there is because he tells us something about what fashion means more broadly. Um, you know, he uses clothes in very strategic ways. And as a young man, we forget he was actually incredibly kind of dapper macaroni um, who wore incredibly fine suits and red-heeled shoes and was very well turned out. And only in later life um, is he kind of caricatured for this more disheveled appearance. But both forms of his dress can be seen as a kind of important political statement. And in both cases, he's often making a statement of political position actually um so i sort of put him there because i wanted us to think about clothes not simply about being well turned out but also about having other sorts of meanings and do you think did other members of the beaumont also um make statements through their clothing and things like that yeah there's definitely a real understanding of the power that clothing can have which i think you know largely comes from an understanding of the kind of role of the press as well and you know how your image can communicate lots of different things and you know particular colors were often used people wore um different sorts of badges in their hair or different sorts of slogans and you know even shopping for silks from different parts of the world carry a kind of a particular message um so there was a real understanding of the power of that that clothes to communicate different sorts of messages. And, and I wanted us to think about that in our kind of list of best dressed Britons as well, and not just try and think about who looked nicest or how many dresses the royal family had. <sighs> that was Hannah Gregg on Georgian fashion and society. Hannah's book, The Beaumont, is out now, published by OUP. Hannah has also recently nominated Charles James Fox as the best dressed Briton in history in an article in our October issue. You can vote for who you think deserves this accolade on our website. Visit historyextra.com forward slash best dress for that. And we'll be announcing the results on the 15th of October. And that's almost all for this week. As always, do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we might even read out your messages in future episodes. And you can follow us on Twitter at History Extra and you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Plus, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find history news, history blogs, image galleries, quizzes and more. 
Next week, we'll be talking about the First World War with Sir Max Hastings and speaking to one of the people who was instrumental in discovering the remains of Richard III. It's an episode that you won't want to miss. The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.